You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 92 by Rudolf Steiner. The lecture listening notes of 16 lectures, uh, translated by Paul King, and the book is entitled The Occult Truths of Myths and Legends. This is Lecture 3, given in Berlin on the 8th of July, 1904, entitled Sacramentalism, Daedalus and Icarus. Is the knowledge taught by theosophy something that has particular importance and relevance for a larger circle of people in general? Or is theosophy something that can only be for a few interested individuals? This question leads us to a theme very seldom discussed but which needs to be discussed, namely so-called sacramentalism and the particular task of our present root race. The question is, what is sacramentalism? And how is our purely human task related to it? We could ask what it means to some craftsman who works all day in a cabinet maker's workshop to know that Lohengrin, as the emissary of the Holy Grail, once inspired the most important cultural movements of the Middle Ages. What significance does all this talk about high spiritual goals have for the broad mass of people? The question is answered when we understand the nature of sacramentalism. Following on from the outlook of the Greeks, I should like to speak today about the emergence of our present post-Atlantean root race in relation to the preceding Atlantean root race and add something concerning the significance of sacramentalism. You all know the legend of Daedalus and Icarus and the legend of Theseus. I should like to touch on the immensely profound meaning behind the legend of Daedalus and Icarus. The legend relates how there was once a man called Daedalus who was able to create works of art that were alive, statues that could see and hear, machines that moved by themselves. Daedalus was able to do all this. He was esteemed throughout the land, but he was also exceptionally ambitious. He had a nephew, Talus, whom he trained, but who quickly surpassed him in certain ways. We are told that Talus was able to use a potter's wheel, and also had certain skills that were alien to Daedalus. For example, Talus looked carefully at the lower jaw of a snake and got the idea to use the snake's teeth to make a saw. Thus he became the inventor of the saw. When we compare the character of Daedalus with that of Talus, we see things in Daedalus that have become alien to our fifth root race. Talus, by contrast, invents things that belong to the technical skills of the fifth root race. If we make a comparison with the fourth root race, the Atlanteans, we see how the Atlanteans had the ability to employ the vril force in the way that we use steam to drive locomotives, machines, and so on. The post-Atlantean era has lost this ability. Our time, on the other hand, has the modern ability to assemble inorganic objects into machines. It is this transition that the legend is telling us about. Daedalus then manages to make wings of a kind with which he can lift himself above the earth. 
His son Icarus also wants to do this, but he does not succeed. He is destroyed by it. This comparison for the Greek mind shows that different ages of our earthly development have different tasks. If a particular era of earthly evolution tried to adopt a task appropriate to another time, it would be destroyed by it. Everything in its place, everything in its time. Now, the Greek Daedalus legend is associated with something else. After he has killed Talus, Daedalus goes to Minos on Crete. There is a monster there, the Minotaur. The Minotaur stands in contrast to the Sphinx. The Minotaur has a bull's head and a human body. The Sphinx has a human head and an animal's body. The Minotaur has to be held in check from the devastation it wreaks. Daedalus has to contain it. He does this by building a labyrinth. The Minotaur has to be fed human flesh. Every nine years, seven youths and seven maidens have to be sacrificed to it. The Minotaur legend is associated with the legend of Theseus. Theseus was the son of Aegeus. Aegeus has told Theseus to retrieve the sword and sandals which Aegeus had hidden under a great rock. After doing many deeds in Athens, Theseus goes to Crete in order to conquer the Minotaur and free the city of Athens from its obligation to provide the seven youths and seven maidens. The Greeks always looked to Crete for something very particular. It was from Crete that Lycurgus learned the laws, which he brought back to Sparta for a kind of communistic commonwealth, for Crete was thought to have a constitution that was typical of all the ancient hierocratic states that renounced all personal possession. The original foundation of every religion is associated with a kind of communism. Even Plato still looked to Crete as the seat of a model constitution. This hierocratic constitution is a remnant of ancient Atlantean institutions. Daedalus was able to restrain what was causing devastation in Crete because he was acquainted with Atlantean life. We must see in the Minotaur a representation of black magic in Crete. This was now to cease. The Athenians no longer wished to send seven youths and seven maidens to Crete. Theseus's ship set out with black sails. Once he had conquered the Minotaur, he wanted to hoist a white sail instead of the previous black one. Black magic was to become white. Theseus manages the undertaking with the help of Ariadne's thread and returns to Athens, but he forgets to use the white sail. The Greeks were not yet so advanced as to be fully worthy of the white path. Love is supposed to reign in Ariadne's thread. But already at that time an indication toward Christianity is made in such a way that the love principle, Ariadne, is stolen by Bacchus, who has not yet developed the principle that was to be spread by Christianity. Theseus, like Hercules, was a hero, a sun-runner, an initiate of the sixth grade. In Greece, a complex of legends of this nature was the property of the common people. The general populace knew these legends. Why did the priests seek to incorporate cosmic secrets into legends? Every priest would have felt it to be unholy, indeed impossibly profane, to put anything into a story that did not have deep meaning. 
The priests were aware that the deep meaning could not be immediately apparent to the common folk. The people were told fables, fairy tales, myths. There was deep meaning in these. A fundamental hallmark of the tales of the ancients is that the farther back we go, the deeper the meaning becomes. There was no such thing in those times as a tale without deep meaning. It was only later times that departed from this priestly view and produced works no longer containing anything of these spiritual secrets. Even things presented in the marketplace were to be those that flowed from the spiritual life. When we bear this in mind, we can say that in those times there was as yet no leadership other than that given by priests. Only later was the priest-king superseded by a secular king. This brought with it the transition from the ancient priest-king state to a state ruled by a secular king. Archon means king-ruler. The legend of the founding of Rome exemplifies this way of seeing things. The way people thought about history in antiquity was not one where one related external events. Only after Herodotus was history related as a chronicle. Previously, this did not happen. Everything was presented symbolically. At that time, what eyes saw and ears heard was to be regarded as something higher, as the expression of the spiritual. When the priest tried to elucidate the origins of the Romans, he related the following. Always when something like this is to realize itself, the seven holy principles of the cosmos come into effect. Everything happens in a succession of the seven principles. At the beginning, the divine founder descends from heaven. Then priests extract what is a living element in the matter. This then lives as kama, earthly desire. Then manas, reason, is born in the kama. Readers aside, kama is spelled K-A-M-A, and readers aside. The body, which is itself a holy thing, lives in heaven. It only becomes unholy when it is misused. These are the four lower principles. Then the three higher ones have to enter. Something that is more perfect, more complete, must descend. This is also what happened with the founding of Rome. First came Romulus. He came from heavenly spheres and was the founder. Rome was an offshoot of ancient Troy. King Numitor of Alba Longa was a descendant of Aeneas, who had fled from Troy and landed in Latium. We just need to understand the words Alba Longa is the long white garment of Catholic priests. Amulius means the unwed one, the priest. So Rome was a hierocratic daughter city of Troy. Numitor is the will element in the human being. He was first exiled to the forest, but then became the ancestor of the founders of Rome. Romulus is the founder of Roman culture, the first king. He was numbered among the gods under the name of Quirinus. The second king was Numa Pompilius. The third king was Tullus Hostilius. He is the representative of Kama. At that time, war was predominant. They developed what in theosophy is called Kama Rupa. The fourth king was Ancus Martius. He is the representative of Kama Manas. Technological things were made. When the fourth principle was sufficiently mature, Etruscan culture was introduced. 
Tarquinius Priscus, the fifth king brings Manas. Under him the great buildings and the water supply was, were constructed. What is called Manas is represented by Tarquinius Priscus. The sixth principle is Buddhi. This brings about the blessings of human coexistence through love and what is just. Servius Tullius was the sixth king of the Romans. He was the one who created order and laid down laws along the lines of the Etruscans. The seventh king was Tarquinius Superbus, the proud who was overthrown. This is how the priests viewed the arising of Rome. It was not an interpretation, but a reality. The governance of the cities was such that the seven principles were what guided the rulers. If something is to thrive on earth, it must be created in sequence of the seven principles. A priest would never have done anything that was for his successor to do. This was all written in the temple books, which were called the Sibylline books. This was the plan, as it were, of history. The priests had to follow the Sibylline books. We see here the realization of spiritual forces which lived in this priest culture. We see that the world is directed and guided by spirit. It was only later that people lost their understanding of spiritual regency. It is said of Tagus, the principal Etruscan god, that he rose out of the ground of a freshly plowed field. Technical construction and applied arts were the hallmark of Etruscan culture. Every stone of Etruscan architecture shows that there is something special here. They aimed at bearing the greatest weight with the least amount of material. This is the principle behind Etruscan architecture, its domes and arches. This culture, which was spiritually guided, descended to the physical plane. Individual aptitude now came to the forefront. All awareness of the connection between the most mundane act and the spiritual ceased. It is clear to an occultist whether or not a person in a particular job has heard something of divine intention and purpose, and whether they have absorbed some of what has flowed out of the spiritual, because such a person performs the most everyday task differently from someone in whom this is not the case. The consecration that pours down from the higher spheres unto earthly life does not pour out in the same way for those who adhere only to the physical plane. The essence of sacramentalism is that the human being fills everyday things with a sacred spiritual quality. The sense and point of the ancient legends was to bring about the right vibration in people's souls, so that they were filled with spiritual strength. Through this, the simplest action of a naive heart can be hallowed. This has effects and will always continue to do so. One who knows this also knows that our culture needs to turn around. We can try as hard as we like to bring harmony and order to the physical plane, but it will fail as long as we work only on the physical plane. Harmony, created on the one side, gives rise to disharmony on the other. But if you let the spiritual operate, you will see that everyday matters are approached in a completely different way. This is sacramentalism. This idea is also behind Christian sacramentalism, healing from the spiritual plane. A sacrament is a physical act that is carried out in such a way that a spiritual process is symbolically expressed in it. It is a symbolism that has its justification on higher planes. 
There is nothing arbitrary in a sacrament. Even in its smallest details it is a reflection of a higher occult procedure. Anyone who wishes to understand a sacrament in which the ceremonial aspect is a reflection of a spiritual event must acquaint themselves with what lies behind it. It is an occult procedure that eludes our external eyes. In all sacramentalism there is not only something rational or intellectual taking place, but something that has a real occult significance. Let us take, for example, the occult significance of fire. In the earliest periods of evolution there was no fire. Fire only emerged when the earth had condensed to the point where earthly matter existed that could catch fire. Hence the discovery of fire is portrayed as a process of our fifth root race. Prometheus brought fire down from heaven. Making fire has given our culture its character. Just imagine how things would be if we had no fire. Everything of a rational and technological nature in our development is thanks to fire. Fire is that which brings things down to the physical plane. Material culture is due to fire. And so the priests had to see something special in fire. For this reason, in the second post-Atlantean cultural epoch, the Persian Magi saw that fire, above all, contained an element that was needed in the sacraments. What did the Persian priest bring about through ceremonial procedures at the altar? Occultism knows that there were seven Zoroasters. The Zoroaster known to history is the seventh. The Persian Magus had a special way of generating fire. This procedure was a reflection of the great cosmic emergence of fire. There stood the Persian Magus with his thyrsus and performed his ceremonies, which every occultist knows well, but only occultists. This procedure was a reflection of the great cosmic emergence of fire. When in the priest training schools they no longer understood how to generate fire with the thyrsus, they looked for fire from a source in nature. Initially they got fire from lightning and then propagated it through the so-called eternal flame, where new flame was only allowed to be lit from the old. Fire obtained from nature was thought to be more effective than fire produced artificially. During an epidemic in animals in England in 1826 and in Hanover in 1828, people made fire by rubbing wood because they believed that the healing herbs they boiled on it would be more efficacious. People need to create a spiritual life again that reaches into every hand movement and every step, and introducing this once more is the task and aspiration of the spiritual movement. The sacramental attitude of earlier times must return. We need to realize that there is a difference in acting out of the spirit or out of matter. Letting spiritual life flow once more, that is our goal. And that is the end of the listener notes to Lecture 3.